Welcome to Hearthside Salons, talks and conversations to feed your creative fire. I'm Heidi Hornbacher of Pagecraft Writing. Each week we bring you a guest worth listening to. Singer-songwriter Durga McBroom feels that anger is one of the best sparks for creativity. She's been very productive lately. I wanted to talk to her about getting cast in 80s juggernaut flash dance, singing with Pink Floyd, and about the current state of race in America. We do a deep dive into our history and we talk about the importance of representation for imagination. Durga believes that the scope of what we aspire to matches the scope of what we can see. A note to our listeners, this conversation contains adult language and themes. I'm really pleased to have my guest Durga tonight. Durga and I met because we were driving to a desert set for a music video at like four in the morning one day. And I had no idea that she was part of the video because the person organizing it had not told me these things. And all of a sudden we get out in this parking lot and I'm like, who is this lady who is like, you know, just so amazing. And I just was like, I'm just sitting there going like, I just need to like listen and be quiet and like, you know, I was just like, oh my God. So um, somehow at the end of that day, you were like, hey, let's be friends. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so um, it was a super cool day. And um, you managed to handle pretty difficult conditions with such yeah. grace. Yeah, and, that was tough. We yeah, got, was, we, like sun poisoning that day. Oh God, yeah. I was like, this lady is a pro. <laughs> um so yeah, I'm just excited to have you on. Um, this Thank the you. whole point of this is, you know, to share inspiration and and talk about stuff. And obviously, with what we have going on right now, there's a lot to talk about, right? Both um, societally and artistically, and we can kind of go wherever we want about this. So, okay. um, I just want to start as an artist. I know a little. I know about your family a little bit, but um, tell me about when you were growing up, when you were a little kid. Like, what was it like in your household and what were the expectations? Okay, so let's go back a little bit before that. Um, okay. My parents. My parents were born in the 1920s, uh, obviously both black. Um, my father was one of 14 children growing up on a farm. It's, uh, well, he was born in Springfield, Ohio, and grew up in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, my mother was born in Louisville, Mississippi, uh, one of two daughters. Uh, and, uh, my grandmother told my, my maternal grandmother told my grandfather that he did not, she did not want her daughters growing up sharecropping cotton as so many in that area did. Right. In fact, uh, I'm going to give you guys some films to watch. Uh, I'm first, notes. first documentary, uh, I think it was on, it was on one of the cable networks, HBO Showtime one of those called Lolly's Kin, L-A-L-E-E apostrophe S, Kin. Um, and it's about the fifth generation of sharecroppers in the Mississippi Delta, wow. who basically their lives have changed very little from slave times to this day. And some of them, their accents are so thick, they literally have subtitles. It's wow. really deep. And when you see how different their lives are to what we take for granted. It's really eye-opening, especially now. Um, there's a little boy in it uh, who, when they go into town, 
he sees the um the car wash man the man that works in the car wash wiping down the cars when they come out mm-hmm. and uh brings tears to my eyes because that was like his hero he's like when i grow up i want to be the car wash man i mean wow. not like the president not like a lawyer or a doctor that was the most important person he'd ever seen was wow. the car wash man that was the height of his aspirations so anyway um, going back to my parents. So my grandmother uh, made my grandfather move them all to Racine, Wisconsin, where my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, became the first black uh, postmaster general in the state, uh, in the history of the state of Wisconsin. Now I'll go over to my father. My father grew up with all these kids, uh, you know, siblings, and his father was a minister. My paternal grandfather mm-hmm. was a minister. And my father realized early on that if he wanted to change his lot, he had to um, be educated. So that became uh, began a lifelong quest for education. He worked as a Pullman porter on the trains to put himself through college. He was the first of all those 14 children to go to college, and he became a psychologist. Uh, he was going to medical school at Columbia University uh, Medical School in New York, which is where he met my mother. Wonderful. Uh, so I come from a family of physicians. It's uh, in terms of expectations. I thank God almost every day that I was blessed with such parents who not only fought amazing adversity to become the people they did, but instilled in my sister and I such love and support and basically told us we could do anything we wanted, we could achieve anything we wanted. Uh, and I know that has a lot to do with my foundation of feelings of self-worth and self-confidence. That's so important. Yeah. And and it's such an un, you know, the fact that they broke, I don't want to say the cycle, but like they broke out of what would be a, what had been expected and yeah. usual for, for the rest of their generation. Um, and both they both did it is pretty extraordinary, and that they found each other is somehow like poetically perfect. Yeah, um, they had to be me. <laughs> I know. Were they so? There was there any expectation that you go that you go into a medical field, or or when you like when you said, "Hey, I'm going to be an, a singer, an actor." Like, how did that go over? Well, my mom. I originally, uh, I was one of those really obnoxious, precocious kids. And no. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What a shock. Um, <laughs> I had read uh, the Boye method of childbirth by the time I was nine. Because my <laughs> mother, my parents would leave like all their medical books and all their everything available for us to read if we were so inclined. And I was. I was an wow. avid, voracious reader yeah. as a child. Um, of course, I got into some stuff I probably shouldn't have. Like uh, I read the, the Sensuous Man and Woman and the Joy of Sex by the time I was 12. <laughs> but... Um, I wanted to be an OBGYN. I wanted oh. to go to medical school and be a doctor. But I started working after school in my mother's office, in my mother's cardiology practice. My mother was the first black woman with a private cardiology practice in the United States. And uh, she started me very young. At first, when I was like nine or 10, I'd come after school and I'd do filing. So I'd get the experience of being in a medical practice. Mm-hmm. Then when I got to be about 15, and you probably couldn't get away with it now, but uh, she trained me on how to do what are called patient workups, where you 
dribble. Oh, no, I never learned to dribble. I never learned venipuncture, but I learned to give injections. I did the blood pressures and the pulses and weighing mm. and when you do the patient intake. Yeah. I used to do then as I got older, when I was in my 20s, she taught me how to run the front office, doing the insurance billings and dealing with the patients and making the appointments and all that kind of stuff. So by the time I was 21, I was running the front and back office. With wow. Yeah. So uh, the thing that I discovered out of doing this, however, was at the same time, I was learning that I had a insatiable passion for performing. Uh, I wanted to be an actor. And the more I discovered that the day-to-day workings of a doctor's medical practice is not fun, was the more I was getting more and more seduced into theater. So my father was quite angry with me. Mm. I went to UCLA as a theater arts major and dropped out after a couple of, like, three quarters, I think. You know, I did about a year. Yeah. And because I discovered that racism was unbelievably prevalent at UCLA. Uh, I was lucky in that I was cast in a production every quarter, but then I started to notice a theme. I played a maid uh, in a one-act play. I played a voice where you never saw me. Mm. I played in a fairly large production. I played Tituba the Slave in The Crucible. And I started thinking, hmm, uh, and the last draw was they were doing a main stage production, which is the largest productions they do. <clears throat> and it was a Shakespeare production. And I had fallen in love with Shakespeare. Of course. I, I did, too. Yeah. And I was a theater major, too. So I'm like, yeah. I'm with you. You know, it's like, <gasps> Shakespeare. Yeah. Oh, my God. You know, the, you know newly discovered. And uh, my, my Shakespeare uh, teacher, professor, was fabulous. Um, so this one professor, uh, Professor Hackett, who we loathed with a passion, uh, was the director. Uh, he uh, <clears throat> called me in for three auditions after each one raving, <clears throat> oh my God, you must be so you know, intimately knowledgeable of this, this content and you, you're so, it's so easy to you. And I didn't realize actually what he was saying to me at the time. Mm. Uh, taking it as a compliment but i realized right, right. back on it he was like how does a black person know how to handle shakespeare like this wow. uh, and ultimately when it came to putting up the cast list not even walk on Keep quiet sorry not even walk on you know in the background oh my god and i was crushed because he had been yeah. great in my auditions so i made a meeting with him and i went into his office and i said excuse me i just want to ask you since you were going on and on gushing right. about my auditions why didn't you cast me in anything and he said well you know a director must think of staging and you're so striking and you you're so striking you stand out so much uh i really had to think of that in terms of the staging and i'm thinking isn't that the char- the characteristics you want for the leading for the lead the female yeah. lead and he said oh well i was considering you for the role of the courtesan which is basically the whore the whore the- yep but, you know, in the end, I thought it would be best for the staging. And, you know, and I was like, seriously? Seriously. Which basically taught me that um, I was, my mother was paying them $15,000 a year for them to be uh, racist towards me. And I figured, I'm going to put up with that kind of racism. I might as well put up with it in the real world while I get paid. And yeah. I left. And six months later, I was cast in Flashdance. So I made the right move. Yeah, you did. Well, what, first of all, what was Lorelai doing at your, because she's your older sister, right? Mm-hmm. 
what was she because you guys sing together was she also was she already in the arts or was she helping mom in the office kind of thing well she helped some in the office too not as much as i did um but she got into music before me she wanted to be a singer before i did okay. uh, and she did do some courses at ucla extension in the business of the music business in fact we are about to launch um some we've done master classes all over the world where we teach uh, vocal techniques as well as about the business aspects of the business that so many artists are just like, yeah. they think about and they get taken and it sucks. Um, so, yeah. I'm just wondering how your parents were like, they both went into the arts, oh no. Well, it's, it's kind of, it's not, we weren't the first. Uh, our oldest sisters, my father had three wives and his first wife, uh, they had two daughters, Marsha um. McBroom Small and Dana Mano. Marsha, uh, she is, uh, they both though, they went and got their, uh, teaching degrees, unlike us, excuse me. And, uh, Marcia wasn't educated for many years, but she was one of the first black supermodels in the 1970s. Oh. Uh, she was a contemporary of Beverly Johnson and Grace Jones. In fact, wow. she, she and Grace and my sister Dana are all very close. Marcia is Grace's God's, uh, God, uh, son's godmother, Grace's yeah. godmother. Son, and my sister Dana wrote, uh, co-wrote "Pull Up to the Bumper," Grace's biggest hit. Amazing. And uh, Marcia was a supermodel, also an actress in a lot of the classic black exploitation films of the '70s. Plus, her biggest claim, claim to fame, arguably, is uh, she was one of the Carrie Nations in the cult classic "Beyond the Valley of the Dolls" of Russ oh Meyer. Oh my God! Wow. Yeah. yeah, she was in that. Uh, and Dana, as I mentioned, wrote "Pull Up to the Bumper." She also is a choreographer, a professor of dance. She's worked with wow. the dancer in Harlem. She's still teaching dance to this day and has also acted and directed. So they went into the arts too. Our okay. parents really te taught us a lot and exposed us to a ton of music. Uh, I remember being taken to see, going to the ballet at five years old. I remember this, seeing Giselle uh, oh. and seeing these women en point in these white chiffon gowns that just flowed and they looked like angels. And I remember yeah. that. And that's how big an impact it had on me. Um, our father played us classic musicals like West Side Story, lived on my turntable for a couple of years. Because um, my, my parents, when they were coming up, they were living in Harlem and they used to have spaghetti night for starving musicians and people oh. like Charlie Parker and things would show up at their house because they were hungry and didn't have anywhere to eat and they would make them a spaghetti dinner. Holy moly. Yeah. <laughs> That's no small thing. So, Just but my Charlie father, Parker. He, he was particularly mad at me because uh, when we did our IQ test in elementary school, I scored the highest score in the history of my elementary school. And my father, above all, um, valued intelligence and education. So he wanted me to use my intellect in mm. academia. Yeah. But... When he came to see Pink Floyd at the Rose Bowl, 70,000 people wow. and saw me on stage. He came up to me after the show and said, I've been giving you a hard time about dropping out of school and you made the right choice. Oh, so that was a great That's family. everything. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So talk to me about Flashdance. You're on now. You're on this incredible the movie that's going to become a cultural touchstone, which I'm sure you don't know at that time, but what was no. it like? What was it like being on, on the set? Like how, after coming from the racism of UCLA, 
to then an actual film set. Well, like? uh, it could have been a lot worse, except for Adrian Line, the director, is an amazing director and just a lovely human being. Um, the audition process was like something out of Hollywood Shuffle, that movie by, you know, Robert Townsend. Yeah. Um, well, first off, I went for a cattle call dance audition, which I knew I wasn't going to get. It was for the lead, but I was like, screw it. I'm yeah. just going to go for as many auditions as I can. Then a couple of weeks later, my boyfriend, who was an actor at the time, uh, had an audition on the Paramount lot and I drove him because uh, I guess we were sharing a car. Anyway, uh, he went off to his audition and in those days you could just come on the lot. So I was waiting and I looked over and there was a little bungalow that said Flashdance. And I was like, that's the production office. So I just walked in because <laughs> and I was like, hi, I was at the audition a couple of weeks ago and the assistant casting director, Julie Seltzer, I want to say, um, she saw me and she's like, Ooh, you, you could be good for heels. I want you to come back. And so I came back and I was sitting there in this little, remember, um, what are those pants? Uh, Gaucho. Yeah. No, Gaucho. Yes. So I had these, this, uh, this little heart neckline, uh, jumpsuit, like one piece. Yeah. The thing. And it was like white eyelet cotton with Amazing. the little Gaucho pants. It was just so 80s. It was disgusting. So cute. Yeah. And my little curly hair with the little flower combs in it. And I'm sitting there and this funny little Englishman comes up to me and he says, hello, who are you? And I said, I'm Durga. Uh, and he said, oh, tell me about yourself. So we talked for a little while and he got up and walked away. And that was Adrian. Huh. I had no idea that was the director of the film. And he had me come back in and read for him and read with him, be myself. I was brushing my hair like we we're in the dressing room and just yeah. had a very relaxed scene. So just be yourself, speak the way you speak, blah, blah, blah. So I just talked the way I talked. Then I had to go in an audition for Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson. We all know who they are. Uh, and uh, just like Hollywood Shuffle, can you be more street? Basically, they said to me, so, you know, I had to shuck and jive it up. And uh, then I had to come back one more time and dance for them in a leotard. Oh. 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 And I'm really, I, I mean, when I look back on it, I was lucky that's all they asked me to do. I had to dance provocatively for them in a one-piece leotard and heels. And uh, they cast me over a couple hundred other girls. So uh, on the set, there's the gym scene where I had to, you know, just get up and call the dude. And that line, I'm glad I ain't no honky. They made me say that. I begged them to uh. let me we shot it a couple of different ways. That's how they wanted it. And this is the 80s. In the 80s, if you were black and you were young and you were an attractive woman, you played a stripper, a hooker, or prison inmate. Right. And I, I played all of the above. Wow. Oh, that's another thing. In the 80s, uh, I did an episode of Hunter. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was Fred Dwyer. It's so funny. They, I'll tell you something about the old Fred there. When we were getting our costumes done. He has to have his trousers custom cut in the crotch region because the last day is uh, gifted. Let's just put it that way. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, uh, again, playing a hooker, uh, it was an episode called uh, Lullaby. 
And uh, there was this killer who was targeting British hookers off the street. And uh, he was Lord something or other. And uh, the actor that played him was so creepy. None of us would talk to him on the set, you know, and he was just, and I didn't know it then. Years later, I figured out, you know who it was? Gary Sinise. I have acted opposite Gary Sinise. Oh my God. Where I'm going up and trying to get him to, you know, yeah. and I, you know, I'll give you a really good time and blah, blah. And I get in a fight with the other hooker and he goes off and gets the English one who was Perry Lister and takes her and kills her. Oh my God. Yeah. So I've done some fun things. As wow, an that's nuts. That's yeah. nuts. Well, I discovered that for all the things that counted against me as an actor, uh, I, they were things in my favor as a, as a singer. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the last, well, not the last, but one of the last big ones that I did, uh, acting jobs that I did living here, uh, I was cast, I was cast in two different things. I was offered two things at the same, I booked two different things at the same time. One was Predator 2, where I would have been sassy black hooker being (sighs) dragged into the police station and booked while I'm cussing the policeman out, you know, typical, stereotypical thing. Uh, and then I was also cast in uh, a film called In the Eye of the Serpent, uh, okay, yeah. which was starring Malcolm McDowell, Lois Childs, who was uh, Holly Goodhead, uh, Bond girl. It was a Swiss-French production. Uh, and I played the lover of uh, Philippe Leotard, who was considered the Jack Nicholson of France at the time, uh, wow. and shooting in Burundi, Africa, for six weeks. Wow. Yeah, so it was like two-day shoot on Predator 2 or this obscure film that no one will probably see for 10 grand and I get to stay in Africa for six weeks. Yeah. I'll take that. And right? I moved to England on the way. Af- I mean, after. After. And started my music career, really. Well, that was my next question. So, like, how did you then <laughs> launch into singing? Well, I, uh, well, I did the first blue, uh, Pink Floyd tour in 87, I joined after they had started. Lorelai. There's a little, there's, there's a little gap between, I think I want to be a singer and I'm on tour with Pink Floyd. That's a- Well, l- let's put it this way. I was, I was still primarily an actor, but Lorelai got a deal with Capitol Records. And uh, uh. so the family of friends uh, that used to live in that building together was Marsha and Dana, our s- older sisters, Grace Jones, and Nile Rogers. Oh Nile Rogers was their neighbor. That so, helps to have Nile Rogers as a friend. Yeah, so uh, Nile offered to produce the album for Lorelai. And uh, so wow. she called me to come and sing backing vocals for her. So I was in New York. We were working on the album and that's right when the Pink, uh, the Momentary Lapse of Reason tour started. Okay. And they, at that point only had uh, Rachel uh, Fury and Machan Taylor. And they needed someone to come in and sing bottom. So. They were shooting some live concert videos in Atlanta, and uh, David, as he put it, wanted to add some color. So uh, he asked the man, Michael Pila, who ran the production company, if he could recommend any singers, and Michael was a friend of Lorelai's. Michael uh, Michael recommended Lorelai, she recommended me, and another friend of ours, Roberta Freeman, who went on to sing with Guns N' Roses, uh, and we sent in photos and because we had just been recording together, we sent in the tapes of what we've been singing so they could hear how we blended mm. and they said, right. Okay. You're fine. And they flew us down and, uh, 
<laughs> we walked backstage and you know Pink Floyd was very big on not showing their faces. I didn't I was a Floyd fan, but I didn't know what they looked like. So we're sitting back there and this guy walks in with an acoustic guitar and he goes, Hello, let's let's go over some of the parts, shall we? And I'm like, Who the fuck is this? And, and he starts singing, and I'm like, Oh, that's David Gilmore. <laughs> <laughs> and uh so we went over like Dogs of War and some of the little harder ones. And we were supposed to watch the first night and then shoot the subsequent nights. But he said, right, you sound great. Uh, would you like to have a go? And what are we going to do? <laughs> I'm not ready. No. Uh, okay. So jumped in. And next thing you know, I had gone from never seeing, I'd gone, worked with some small bands where I'd done like two, three, 400 seaters. I'm singing in front of 15,000 people. Oh my God. And I walked out and I looked around and my nerves subsided. And I said to myself, you're home. This is, oh. where, you, this is where you belong. Wow. And, uh, because Lorelai had signed to Capitol and she was expecting her album to come out, they, uh, they had her sing in, uh, at the sports arena here. But she said, you know, I'm, I'm going to be supporting my album. They asked me. And I sing bottom anyway. And yeah. I'm the one I'm keeping for the rest of the tours. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's ridiculous. And what was it like touring with Floyd? Like, what was it like? Um, I got a top-notch education. This was like music university. I yeah. got to work with the best musicians in the world. Uh, with David Gilmore is painstakingly precise in what he wants. He knows what he wants. He knows how he wants, he wants it to sound. And you learn how to do it real fast. Mm. Uh, the other thing was, Rachel and Machan had sort of developed this rivalry and they were jockeying for a position. They had made certain alliances with certain people and it was just it was how it, it, it came out on stage was they would try to kind of outsig each other and they have very high, very cutting voices. So it was just like, ah! all the time. And uh, I got thrown in the middle of this, never having been on tour before, because this was my first tour. And Steve O'Rourke, God bless him, uh, the late manager of Pink Floyd, came to me and he said, look, sort out this section or you're all fired. And I was like, what, me? <laughs> I don't know, but I was like, right. <clears throat> look, you bitches, get your shit together. Stop trying to sound like cats and you've got to blend it. Now, if you don't fucking get it together, I'm going to beat your ass so they were like oh okay so um <laughs> the section pulled itself together we sounded great and um machan left after the first tour lorelei came in for like four months and then they got rid of everybody and brought in um sam brown and um claudia fontaine and me so they kept me that says something yeah yeah just in terms of sisters like you know, I love my sister and we've actually talked, we talked about doing some projects together back in the day and it never worked out for various logistical reasons. But like, is it weird working with your sister or is it wonderful or all of it? It's great because not only do, have we been singing together since we were children? I mean, we used to, I think, I, you know, I'm reflecting on a lot of things now. I think back on my poor mom who was working in a medical practice until sometimes seven o'clock at, she wouldn't get home till seven or eight at night. And we'd be all, look, mom. And we'd have this like little dance thing Aww. that we, song thing that we worked out. 
there's a great picture we have of us where we've got our little instruments and I got my little beetle boots on and we come up with these productions and she would sit and watch, even though I know she must've been exhausted. Uh, so we've been singing together for a long time. There are parts, I mean, even now listening to the mixes of this album, there are some parts where uh, we definitely have distinct, unique uh, characteristics, but there are some parts where we blend so well, I can't tell who's wow. who because we've been singing together so long. And on top of that, we're both professionals. We've been yeah. doing for a while. Lorelai toured with the Stones and with Rod Stewart. Uh, you know, I've worked with Billy Idol. I did a show here uh, for the National Academy of Songwriters where I had to do, I had to work out backing vocals for Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys on, you know, Nobody Knows. There's some Nobody harmony to compete with. Because he couldn't tell us because he was like, uh, Oh my God. Uh, him and Michael Bolton and Carol King, uh, just, just a few of the highlights from that show. We had to work out parts for like 15 different artists wow. that show five hours it was crazy uh diane warren was their um amazing songwriter who i've also known since i was a kid she wow. was friends with sister uh okay. and oh on the mcgroom sisters album we went to a school with a lot of the hollywood kids and so i could be seen running around barefoot at carol king's house because her daughter louise goffin uh is a good friends of ours uh we grew okay. up with her and she is featured on Wish You Were Here. We've oh. taken Wish You Were Here, and let's just say everybody's done it to death. So we wanted to do it a little bit differently. And awesome. I can't wait to hear. Like, yeah, all three of us are singing on it. So it's Oh, cool. beautiful. But we wound up, I wound up doing a duet with uh, Bill of my song, Mother Dawn, that was a Blue Pearl song. Cyberpunk was the album I worked on. I sang on like six or seven tracks but the, one of the songs was with the uh wilson phillips uh you know sure. wilson sisters and okay. i did bb's on one song um and then he was saying he wanted to do a dance kind of song and we were trying to find something and i played him that and he said well, why don't we just do this so there's two versions of that that's they cool it's weird when you hear billy idol singing lyrics that you wrote i'm like oh, this one yeah <laughs> Most and of us then, uh, won't have that experience, so that is special. <laughs> the only other time I felt that was this uh, Blue Pearl uh, re-release, a uh, remix of uh, Can You Feel the Passion that went out on Boy George's label, and he did backing vocals for me. Ah! So I'm like, that's Boy George on my stuff. <laughs> so what is happening now with Blue Pearl? What have you been working on? Um, youth and I reconvened. God, is it four or five years ago now? Um, we decided to meet up and we had a long chat and he said, uh, can I tell you a secret? You can't tell anyone. And I said, what? And he said, uh, we're recording a new Pink Floyd album. And I was like, what? And he said, yeah, because the, the label basically was owed one more on their contract. Uh, we're actually owed a couple and they said, we'll give you one. And that's how the Endless River came about, as well as it being a tribute to Richard Wright, who had passed on. So uh, you said, yeah, I'm youth, by the way, is the other half of Blue Pearl for anyone who doesn't know. He's a um, founding member of Killing Joke, and he's worked with Pink Floyd and Paul McCartney, Paul McCartney with the Firemen, I guess it's called, uh, mm. uh, the Verve, you know, Bittersweet Symphony. He Love, yeah. That. Yeah, so he's the other half of Blue Pearl. Okay. Uh, so anyway, he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm now 
co-producing The Endless River. So let's listen to the whole thing. If you hear anything jump out at you, jump in and sing. And uh, so I sang on three songs and David kept everything I did, which was lovely. But at that same time, we started a new Blue Pearl album. Now we've been looking for a home for it. We've been looking for a label to put it out. And it's been very difficult. It's just hard these days. Yeah. Uh, we could self-release, but you know, I want it to make some noise because the stuff that's on it is so good. Uh, I'm really proud of it. Uh, <laughs> I've actually, the first Blue Pearl album, I was a bit of a neophyte. I didn't really know. I had good instincts, but I wanted to defer to, you know, the people who had been doing it much longer than me, even though they started saying things. I was like, wait, what? I don't think we should do that. I was right in the end. Uh, and now coming back to this, youth still kind of wants me to defer a lot. And I'm saying, no, I know what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. And songs that I've now taken the lead on are the ones that are getting the most attention, which he doesn't like very much, but <laughs> they are. Uh, so, um, so when you're, when you sit down to write a song, like what, what is it that moves you? Like what, as an artist, like, is, do you like have a, a phrase come into your head or do you want to talk about a subject or is it always a different way in or like? It depends. Um, my, my songs are pretty personal usually, uh, or I can see, I mean, I wrote something uh, called Remember Me about one of the more heinous school shootings that happened last year. So I was just so struck by this, this boy's face Mm. And what I saw in his eyes and I could see, you know, every slight that he'd felt walking down the halls and, you know, people laughing at him and him basically saying, you're going to remember me. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote that. Um, or something as simple as someone will say something just off the cuff. Dave Kersner, you know, who I work with a lot. And he was saying that he had would, had been sleeping. He'd been taking a nap, but the, the leaf blower man woke him up. And, I don't know why, but it's just something popped in my head. Um, I guess because I've been sheltering in place in my LA apartment, which I shared with my late husband. Um, so he's all over the place. So I just got this idea of, you know, leaf blower man, go away. I was having a wonderful dream. And, the, you know, I was dreaming about my husband and he was there and we were together and laughing. And the leaf blower man woke me up and tore me out of it. Right. I get inspiration from so many things, but the best inspiration I find is anger. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, talk to me about moving to Italy. Uh, well, I first considered moving out of the country after the death of Sandra Bland. For those of you who don't know who she was, she was an activist um, and very, very uh, visible on social media as I am, she had just gotten her dream job. She lived in Atlanta, she was moving, and uh, she was driving down the street and a cop was tailgating her, which they like to do. And we, I know most people have a very visceral response, but black people, we really, my, I, you know, I start shaking when yeah. a cop behind me. And so she went to get out of his way and in her nervousness forgot to signal so he lit her up, of course, pulled her over. Uh, she knows, knew her rights. She was smoking. Uh, he, he was saying, you know, put out your cigarette. And she said, I don't have to, and I don't have to open this window, and I don't have to do a lot of things uh, except show you, you know, my license and registration. He yanked her out of the car, 
beat the crap out of her. I think slammed her head into the pavement. Mm-hmm. And when uh, another officer came along, she was handcuffed on the side of the road with this huge knot on her head. And uh, the arresting officer told his colleague, uh, yeah, I got to think of something to charge her with. Because there really wasn't anything. Right. Took her to jail, uh, put her in a rear holding cell that was normally supposed to be used for like five or six people in the back around the corner. Interestingly enough, the only cell in the place that the camera wasn't working. And a couple days later, she was found to have hanged herself with a garbage bin liner. One of the Mm -hmm. big ones from the big trash cans. Funny thing is, though, they don't give you those in cells, do they? Right, yeah. Why would it have been in there? Not allowed to have that in a cell. So it horrified me because she could have been me. Any day of the week, easily could have been me. And it shook me to my core enough to where I started thinking, I might need to get out of this country. And we all know what the last straw was. Let's just say a week after the last election, I put a deposit on my apartment in Rome. And I work over there so much, it was pretty much a no-brainer. But that was the last straw. You are always so brave on social media. Like, you take up the fight where and like I'm, like, scared to respond to people. And you're, like, you never seem afraid. So I'm just, like, I see that, you know, you are much more, obviously, much more visible than me or an average person. Let me show you something. Okay. After my husband died, I got this tattoo. Nice. Okay. It yeah. literally says, it's, I know it's backwards, zero bucks given mm-hmm. on my arm because that's after one of the biggest gifts he gave me in dying was realizing what's important and not to get were not to worry about the small stuff and the insignificant oh what if they don't like me you know what no i'm going to be my biggest most self-expressed self until i skid into the coffin all used up and if i say my truth and somebody doesn't like it What's, so what's it been like for you in Italy? Because, you know, I, I, my husband and I both have dual citizenship. We spend a lot of time in Italy and I know it, Italy is not, uh, I am the perfect answer for racism either. No. Um, I wish you guys could adopt me. I know, right? (laughs) Um, I find though, like most European countries that American black women in particular get a little bit more of a pass, uh, the racism in Italy is more pointed towards African immigrants or refugees. Right, yeah. Um, I know they might look at me and not know, but it's pretty readily apparent that I'm not an African refugee when the minute I open my mouth. Um, plus, because I have a certain status because of having worked with Pink Floyd, I'm generally treated with a great deal of respect. Uh, because Italy went crazy for Prague, for Prague progressive rock music. It's like oh yeah, oh yeah. Huge. There's like a there's like 125 Pink Floyd tribute bands in Italy alone. Oh yeah, God. that's yeah. several. It's not the same as here. It's just not. Are you planning on being like? Because you split your time, right? So it's like half. Normally, I'm only here about a year, uh, a year, a month out of the year. I usually come in January for the Nam show, but then the pandemic happened and I sheltered in place. What would you what would you want your 13-year-old self to know about what was coming? <sighs> to keep being as wildly self-expressed as I was then. Um, I don't know. It's interesting. I never had kids. And I think 
you know, what would have happened had I done that? I know my career would have been very different. Yeah. Um, Lorelai had to take off several years while she raised her son. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I would trade my life the way it is now for that. Women aren't supposed to say that, but you know. No, I feel the same way. We're childless by choice. And I I don't know that, I mean, I know that my, I would not be able to be an artist to the degree that I am if I had to split my time taking care of another human being. And I did get some of the experience of being a mother with my stepchildren, which really sucked because being a stepmother really sucks. That's hard. (laughs) Yeah. That's a different side of the job. Yeah. Yeah. So I I, I got a little bit of it. I didn't get to raise any babies, but you know, I got grandkids and I'm going to actually see my granddaughters this weekend. That's so, wonderful. It's like, there's enough people in the world, even yeah. though I love to have seen uh, an external representation of my DNA expressed. Because yeah. uh, it sounds conceited, but I've got really good genes. No, um, I know, right? I know. I was like, what would what would my kid have looked like? I and mean, what would she yeah. have turned out? How smart would she have been? Like, it is. It's like there's something you want to. I'm curious to know what he or she would have been like too. But yeah, but that ship has sailed. So. Me I'm too. not mad about it. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with you. I'm the same way. I wouldn't trade what I have and my freedom. No. And no, um, I mean, I love, and that's the thing. I love babies. Babies love me. Yes, they do. I, I can play with all my friends and my relatives' babies and give them back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't have to be like puked on in the middle of the night and to feel validated as a nope. woman. No, I know? listen to my. I listen to what my sister goes through. She's just had number three, and I'm just like, wow. I'm going to yeah. go take a nap because I can. So, yeah, um, right, right. so I'll t- talk to you later. <laughs> what do you want people to know about this moment? This is one of those moments where, God damn it, do not get complacent again because yeah. it's easier to remain apathetic. Yeah. Do not go back to being comfortable. Mm-hmm. Being uncomfortable is where growth happens and where miracles happen. Yeah. Um, and God damn it, it's time people listen to us. We've been saying this forever. I mean, anyone who's followed my Facebook page sees that I have been, I mean, I realized this when all this jumped off after George Floyd died and everything. I'm like, I was in training for this time. Yeah. I posting and posting and posting and posting and posting and posting about racial issues. And people would say to me, oh, you're racist or you're obsessed with this. And I've had conversations with people. Why are you so adamant about this? And I'm like, because people need to wake up about it. And now I'm like, see, yeah, see, what did I tell you? What did I say? What have I been saying for the last five years on Facebook? This. Yeah. (laughs) And so it's quite validating for one. Um, I would ask that people really do the work of introspection, uh, uncover your own unconscious bias. Two recommend, two more recommendations I have. Uh, there's a book called White, White Fragility. And I know even thinking about that makes some people uncomfortable, but it's a thing and it's oh, yeah. real. And I've been running into it all over the place. Yeah. Even with friends of mine and allies who are very well-meaning. I had this one guy, you know, freak out because he was adamant that we need to, we, we need to change Black Lives Matter to, you know, Black Lives Matter more or Black Lives Matter this. And it's like, first of all, nobody asked you. It's fine the way it is. 
the actual saying is all lives will matter when black lives matter. Uh, it's an opening for dialogue the way it is. And it's not your place to tell us how to express ourselves. And he got all pissy with me about it. And I'm on your side. But I'm, like, I'm like, well, if you are, shut up and listen. We did not ask you what it should be called, what you think it should be called. It was developed the way it was for a very good reason. And either you get it or you don't. And if you don't, ask yourself, why? Why do you feel it's your place to change it? So White Fragility is a great book. The other thing is must, 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 must watch 13th. Yes. By Ava DuVernay. It's an Oscar-winning or Oscar-nominated documentary that explains so much yeah when people like candace owens who i detest with a passion oh she just has a different point of view no there's a long tradition of people like her in our community because back in the day in slave times there were house negroes and field negroes right house slaves and field slaves and the house slaves a lot of times were the illegitimate offspring of the slave owner. Mm -hmm. They tended to be lighter skinned. Uh, they were given more uh, trusted duties. They usually lived in the big house, in the attic or what have you, and they would be given some of the hand-me-down clothes so they were dressed better, and they did not work to the back-breaking work of the fields. Uh, they considered themselves part of the family uh, and would often do things to curry favor with Massa mm -hmm. so that they would retreat, receive more um, benefits, you know, choice sure. foods, more clothes, more freedom within the confines of slavery. And, you know, if Massa said, oh, you know, they, those no count Negroes, you know, he didn't say that word, but are, are just lazy. Oh yeah, Massa, we know, especially that big John, you know, he ain't good for nothing. He like, and they would agree with them and, they would often even give up runaways when they heard about wow. uh, yeah, plans to escape. They would tell Massa because they were on Massa's side. She is just one in a long line just like that. And Malcolm X has spoken on it. Wow. Uh, and here's complicit. the thing. It's complicit. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize that she used to be a liberal. And uh, she got really uh, embarrassed by something that happened once, uh, but she also discovered she wasn't getting very far and she wasn't making very much money until she got mad about this one thing and then decided to jump ship and start being a pundit for the GOP. Wow. And she is just the night, the, she's one of those good Negroes that the GOP right. just loves because she validates their racist views. Yes. Because if a black person saying it, it must be true. But you can go back and see just how calculating she is because the more she sings these, you know, basically sells out her own people, the more dollars she gets in her pocket when she sells her books. Wow. And people are too stupid to realize that they're being duped. Yeah. And it really annoys me because the cost that we, you know, what it costs us is unimaginable. It's, it, it validates people's need to be apathetic and say, well, George Floyd deserved to die he was not a very good guy it's like take out your clock set it for eight minutes and 46 seconds now imagine having the full weight of a grown man on your neck 
for that period of time and tell me anything that he did 12 years ago justifies that. It doesn't. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, I, um, I agree. This is like the time for discomfort. Um, I, you know, as so many white people have like family members that are on the other side of things. And, you know, it's just that for years, it's been the whole polite Thanksgiving. Oh, Thanksgiving's going to be awkward. We're going to have fights about politics. Oh, just don't talk about it. You know, so we do this whole dance about it's just pressury and awkward and da, da, da. And when this came up, um, one of my family members made a comment about like, well, I just don't understand. Da, da, da. And and she she rattled off a few things that definitely came out of Fox News people's mouths. And I was like, okay, this is, this is what this is. This is my opportunity to be really uncomfortable and press in and try to speak with her in a way that she could hear and not feel threatened because of white fragility. But like, yeah. let me, you know, let me put it in a way that you might be able to hear where I'm coming from. And, and I went back and talked about like, let me talk about my childhood. Let me talk about my, my parents and like the unconscious racism and, the, and then the racial bias that I was just kind of born, you know, indoctrinated without even realizing it mm -hmm. until I started to just, you know, dig in as a, as an adult and realize, oh, that's not because I'm special. That's white privilege like that. Oh, and that's, oh, that's not actually true about that group of people. Oh, wait a minute. Wait, well, if that's not true, then also this other stuff isn't true. And, mm -hmm. you know, just kind of this cascade of like things falling from your eyes. Yeah. And so I was trying to gently nudge a family member towards having a similar epiphany. And, um, and I quoted some numbers by the DOJ about black incarceration rates in this country and this and this and that. And what I got back was, well, well, we just are going to disagree about this because, and I was like, it, it's not a disagreement. The numbers are the numbers. Mm -hmm. so, I thought, so like, you know, I mean, that's the thing about people like Candace Owens is she kind of supports people have this, underlying idea that well black people commit more crime just because yeah, of this. that's what i got told and i was like no and well in some respects yes but you then have to look at how these stats are gathered right. if you have a group of people first of all that have been redlined into certain communities uh that used to have a thriving middle class when there were good factory jobs right after the war in the 50s mm -hmm. there was a very strong middle class uh a black community um, and people were starting to gather some wealth and buying homes and things like that. But then those good factory jobs were shipped overseas. Mm -hmm. uh, then see, it was starting to build up up until coincidentally the civil rights movement. And uh, when the black Panthers stood up, people have been trained to think of them as evil and bad and criminal Basically, what they were saying is, you know, we've got kids over here who are starving uh, and we've got racist police who are coming into our communities and hurting us. So we're going to take care of ourselves, make sure that nobody's getting hurt in our neighborhoods. And we're also going to start huge uh, after school programs for these kids so that their parents can work and so that they mm -hmm. have to eat and they have uh, school lunch programs. All, all these amazing things that people don't hear about. They just hear about the militant guns. Yeah. Guns. Yeah. Because, you know, God forbid we should allow, be allowed to exercise our Second Amendment. Right. I was going to say, they were the first ones to go, wait a minute, Second Amendment. And it's like... Yeah. And in fact, the only time when the NRA has not stood for 
uh, someone exercising Second Amendment rights is when the Mumford Act was was passed in California, when several armed Black Panthers went to the Capitol, just like they did in Michigan the other day, uh, were not violent or anything. But Reagan passed that law so fast about concealed carry in California. Mm. That's why you can't legally conceal carry in the state of California, because some Black people had the nerve to go to the Capitol armed. <laughs> and at that time, J. Edgar Hoover was quoted as saying the Black Panthers were the biggest threat to American democracy in the nation. So uh, introduce COINTELPRO. Write this down. COINTELPRO was, a, was an FBI uh, program where they introduced uh, operatives. They infiltrated the Black Panthers they infiltrated the inner city neighborhoods and they got intel with which to discredit these people um, as well as starting to flood the inner cities with heroin to placate and, and you know, drug the masses. Yeah. The next uh, iteration of that stepped it up a few notches uh, when Reagan was funding the Sandinistas and uh, the money to fund them came from cocaine. So uh, there are a couple of documentaries and some, you know, docudramas based on, there was one guy, Rick, I can't think of his name, uh, who exposed all of this, that the CIA was running heroin into the United States and he was murdered, of course. He suicided by a double tap to the back of the head. How oh, convenient. Yeah. That's how uh, everyone kills themselves. And that's when, gee, is it coincidence that the crack epidemic coincides with this same thing. What do you know? And where did they introduce it? The inner cities. Not thinking, of course, that it was gonna spread out to the suburbs, but. So there has been a concerted effort to sabotage this community by our own government uh, and by racist, systemic racist laws, like redlining, which is where banks well, you know, outline certain neighborhoods and say, well, this is a less desirable area, so let's shove all the black people in there by denying them loans to buy in other neighborhoods where white people live. And then those neighborhoods become devalued and they become ghettos. Uh, the police over-police black communities, they found when they, the DOJ studied Ferguson after the whole, uh, um, the right brown thing yeah. in, uh, that white people had actually more drugs on them than the black people, but the black people were getting arrested more often. That was what I tried to argue to my family member. Yeah, there's a great article I'll give you that's on HuffPost uh, called uh, Black Crime Rates When Numbers Aren't Neutral. So, so the stats themselves are racially skewed. Um, and plus, if you're being funneled into a certain avenue, yes, yeah, some people get out, but a lot more people don't right. because it's by design. Of course. So when you say, oh, well, they're just more, you know, well, blacks kill blacks more. But, well, whites kill more whites, too. It's called intraracial murder. That's, right. that's just human nature. And if you introduce wealth into a poor community the rates with which crime drops is pretty much the same across the board, racially speaking. So mm -hmm. that would tend to indicate it's not the race, it's the financial circumstances at which they live. 
If you yeah. live a, a below the poverty level in an urban situation, chances are there's going to be more crime there. Right. We're not animals. And what know? are you supposed to like? But when, but when Aladdin steals bread and sings about it, it's cute. Right. Exactly. So, so um, oh, when Europeans steal a whole fucking country and cause genocide amongst the natives and then steal a whole other race of people to work the land that they just stole, that's just progress. That's progress. Well, and, and you know, I was looking at the, uh, this was the next thing I'm going to try, try to bring up with my, my family member about the, the, the prison industrial complex and the fact that all that is is an extension of slavery. It's like we're still profiting off black bodies. Mm-hmm. We're just do it. We get to do it under a different guise at this point. Yeah, just um, make tell them to watch thirteenth. Well, that and for me, the the a turning point was when I because I didn't know about redlining, you know, uh, until I read the case for reparations by Tanahasi Coates, and that was my first like, oh, oh my god, you know, because. Mm-hmm. I thought this country was a meritocracy and, you know, equal opportunity. And this is just like, you know, my blissful little white bubble of like, oh my God, well, no wonder, no wonder. Like, how Um, are you supposed to fight your way out of that? How do you, how do you justify the fact that the forefathers who wrote all men are created equal, nine tenths of them were slave owners? Mm Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Durga. I love you. And I just, I love you too. Yeah. I, I, Thank you for helping me be a little more brave when I need to be and, Aww. you know, helping help. Like we're all trying to learn more and be good allies and amplify everywhere we can. So next time on Hearthside Salons, besides breaking boundaries as the first black Romulan in Star Trek history, Michael Mack led a life of service and craft from a family with preacher roots. Michael grew up ministering to the less fortunate. When he returned to the DC area, he became renowned for his work with at-risk youth in communities of color. His method was using theater training to allow these kids access to speak their truths. He'll talk with us about Black Lives Matter and using his years of training to speak to this current turning point. Special thanks to our graphic and sonic designer, Joel Harris. Our theme music is by Lachey Swing. For more on our script coaching, online Concept to Pages writing courses, and writing retreats in Italy, again someday, check out pagecraftwriting.com at PagecraftWriting on Instagram, and at PagecraftWrite on Twitter. I'm Heidi from PageCraft. Thanks for listening, and stay well.